0: East South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa, science advisor Matt Moniz, and are we going to introduce you as Spirit Medium Stephanie Burke? or
1: However, you want to do it. Psychic
0: Medium Stephanie. You know, I, I don't want to do that, though, because I don't want people to be like, oh, there's a psychic medium on the show tonight. We can call in and get readings. Because that's not what you're here for. You're a permanent right. co host now.
1: We'll have to come up with something.
0: Yeah, we'll have to come up with a catchy title. Uh, but apparently, you're huge in. Um, what country was that person from?
1: Western Australia?
0: Yes, you're huge in Western Australia. So, And I've been getting a lot of positive emails and Facebook messages and what have you about Stephanie's joining the program.
1: That's
0: awesome. Actually, there were some eighth graders here earlier today from Roosevelt Middle School that were interviewing me That's for cool. a, a class project. And the first question they asked me is, so do you do the show on Saturday nights with Stephanie?
1: Really? <laughs> That's awesome.
0: <laughs> Apparently, they, they, they're... they're grandfather knows your dad or something so
1: maybe we'll have to talk about that after yeah shout out to them definitely Anybody absolutely. that wants to give us a shout out let me know how i'm doing
0: yeah absolutely and we've added you to the spooky crew at spooky email yes. so if you want to email us at that address you can uh, talk directly to stephanie you can talk to stephanie about us we'll see it but whatever we've got <laughs> thick skins and uh you can let us know how you like the new format of the program uh, and this is going to be the first time that we're all here together the full panel and and matt Koss and i were talking before we came on the air and we're like well this is going to work out great except for what are we going to do the next time we have a guest in the studio
1: i was thinking that myself
0: what are we going to do on on we'll the just, nights when we have four guests in we'll the kick studio? my knees
1: out yeah we'll
0: figure it out <laughs> We've all shared microphones before. We'll just all make sure we brush our teeth a little extra hard before the yes. show, and
1: I just brushed my teeth, just for the record.
0: Yeah, well, I learned from a broadcast colleague of mine that you should brush your teeth right before you go on the air, because what will happen is if there's anything stuck in your teeth at all, you're going to like Ooh. try to yeah, work it out on true. the air, and it's going to come out sounding like crap. So, uh, but in, and if you were watching on Spooky TV at SpookySouthCoast.com, dot com, you could actually see me. Picking my feet there with my tongue. And you can watch that both on our website as well as on WBSM.com. For those of you who are listening to the program via podcast, uh, you never really tune into the show live. This is the reason why. If you've got nothing to do on a Saturday night, you want to tune in live and pay attention to what goes on on spooky TV. Because you might see us picking our nose. You might see us Mm -hmm. playing on the Internet. And I want to clear up that misconception, too, by the way. Because people see us uh, on the on Spooky TV, they'll see us on the computer, they'll, you know, I'm always using this computer over here, uh, they'll see us on our phones or whatever, uh, you don't realize that we're, we're tapping into the show in so many different ways. We've got the chat room, we've got the email, we've got the Twitter feed, we've got questions coming over Facebook, we've got all this all these different ways that we need to, and we'll be posting things up during the course of the show too, like... Here's the number to call in if you have any questions for our guests. So, uh, you know, we don't have time during these two hours to, to mess around. So uh, just wanted to let everybody know that because you know, the more cameras we have, you know, the more every move that we do is going to be scrutinized. And we would never disrespect the guests like that never. by by playing on our phones when we're doing it. I mean, if, if, you know, if we were just interviewing like Matt and Matt, I'd be over here playing Flappy Bird or something. <laughs> But when we have a real Does guest like we will exist? tonight, right. that still oh, I still play it. I'm still trying to beat my 103. I haven't deleted it. I'm, I'm I'll all never about be able to get jetpack it joyride now. Oh yeah. Yep. Uh, uh, oh, there you are. Hey, hello. How's it going? How are you? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, there'll be a new Flappy Bird coming out this summer. I saw online. Really? I'm gonna try swinging this over this way. Yeah, then I can see Matt. <laughs> right now, I got a picture of somebody in a bikini, so that's not. Yeah. Not the, I'd rather. Yep. Let's go back that way. There we go. <laughs> Uh, but uh, we will have uh, the full program tonight because the Red Sox, thankfully, they lost in the 15th inning. So, uh, you know, I set up tonight's show knowing that the Red Sox were on early. It was a 325 pregame. So it's like, well, there's no way the game's still going to be going on. We can book our guests, And our guest tonight is Peter Tower, who's written a new book called Hockamock, Place Where the Spirits Dwell. And we'll talk about the Hockamock Swamp, the Bridgewater Triangle, all aspects of that with him coming up in just a bit. But I was like, well, we're going to have a full show. I come in and the Red Sox are on. I'm like, oh, it must be a replay. And then I'm like, no, wait, the Red Sox are on the radio still. What the heck's going on here? And then I look and I see it's the 15th inning. I was like, oh, no. But, uh, yeah, we could have been on on time, but that was our fault. We'll get better. Just when we thought we had everything set and ready to go, we add new technology and throws a monkey wrench into everything. But that's all right, because we're trying to make the show better. And uh, for those of you watching on Spooky TV or watching on YouTube later on, you may see a little bit better quality wide shot. Are we on the wide shot? I don't know. All the lights are on, so I can't tell. We'll do There's the so slow man. transition. <laughs> so we've got the the wide shot up there. That is our new HD super camera. It's got the, the bases weighted on it. It's got the, the you know, little blue lights there. I call it the Tron cam. <laughs> and... Uh, and with with that, we should have a better quality picture, and we're hoping to be able to put this show up and make it available for cable access shows. But we got to we got to get a couple in the in the can first, and we got to edit them and set them up the way we want to do it so that we can get them out there in the way that these networks want to have them. But maybe you run a cable access station, you'd be interested in carrying the program. Hit us up, Spooky Crew at SpookySouthCoast.com. dot com. Let us know what you need on our end, and then we'll start. Working it out so that we can upload it. So I know that we had some questions we had to figure out, right, Matt, about licensed music and what we can promote and all that. Yeah, a little bit, but... See, here's the way I look at it. We're spooky South Coast, so cable access stations should change their rules to accommodate us. That's what I'm thinking. I like that. Instead of the other way around. I mean, we've been doing this for a long time. So if we want to put our show on your network, you, you know, you, and of course, I'm I'm kidding. We just <laughs> got to figure out what it is that we can and can't do because, you know, we want to still be able to promote legend trips, that's for sure. We don't want to miss out on that. We still have six tickets left for the Murdoch Whitney House. We can't seem to to move these last six tickets. So if you're thinking about it, if you're on the fence, buy it, please, because we've got another event waiting to be announced. Your
2: station for the South that's Coast. That's
0: right. And uh, <laughs> we are going to announce that as soon as we can move a few more of these tickets. So... You don't want to miss out. This event is actually going to happen before the Murdoch-Whitney house. This event is going to happen on June 28th, I believe. So we're not going to have a whole lot of time to move these tickets. So we need to get that announcement made. And uh, also, if you'd like to come with us to the Lizzie Borden Bed and Breakfast, uh, we'll be doing an, a, an investigation there tied in with Tarragon. It won't be a Legend Trips event. But it will be myself and Jeff Belanger running these ghost hunts there. Maybe some of the celebs from Terracon will come along, depending on how much space we have. And uh, we're going to have people come in and conduct an investigation. They're going to get the tour. It'll just be, I think it's like five hours, and you'll still be able to get home and get plenty of rest so that you can get up and go to TerraCon the next day and, uh, and be there bright and early. So you can go to TerraCon.net to find out more about the convention itself, and also there you can purchase your tickets for the Lizzie Borden Ghost Hunt. And please, please do so in advance, because there's only 25 tickets for each night. We're doing it two nights, and you need to get those tickets right away because uh, they will sell out. And if we get to the point where we're selling the tickets you know, at TerraCon, forget it. You would have no chance, because as soon as people walk by the Lizzie Borden booth, and they see all the stuff that Leanne's going to have there, and they see the ghost cams running and everything that they're going to have going on, people are going to snatch up those tickets. So get them now while you can. You must purchase a Terracon ticket in advance in order to buy your ghost hunt ticket. However, if you go to seize the deal at WBSM.com, you can get single-day passes for Terracon half price.
1: That's a cool deal.
0: Half price. $12.50 you can get into Terracon for the day and uh, or $25 for the weekend you can't go wrong. So make sure that you go to seize the deal at com in order to take advantage of that. All right. That does it for all of the promotional plugging. Anything else we need to plug? No. Yeah. Silence. All right. So that works. Uh are we going to get a little weird?
1: We are going to get
0: weird. All right. Let's do this. It's going to be the the first uh the first full crew time that we get weird. So let me just move around here cuz I didn't have my screen up. All right. Here we go.
2: More bad news. Well, I got a great show for you today with some wonderful weird stuff. I
1: feel, I feel All so right. the first weird official weird story <laughs> of the week is from the Associated Press. This one is Man Stole Bread Truck and Made Deliveries. So a man stole a New York City bread truck and began delivering loaves of baked goods to random businesses on Thursday. David Bastar hopped into the truck while the real driver was actually making a delivery into a pizzeria. The owner of the bakery said about $5,000 in bread was taken and dropped off at random unknown locations. No one was hurt and there was no damage to the truck. Bastar was eventually caught at LaGuardia Airport where he was taken to a hospital for evaluation and was charged with criminal possession of stolen goods and driving without a license. What makes it weird? He was in his underwear, and only his underwear the whole entire time.
0: Maybe he thought he was the Pillsbury Doughboy.
1: He might have thought so.
0: Loving from the oven. You know what's interesting about that, Matt Koss, is his name okay. was Dave, and he was a, he was a bread Dave guy. a bread guy. So I'm wondering if it was the Dave the Bread Guy that we know. You know, Maybe, maybe, maybe. he just missed, missed out his out calling time. Yeah, and decided to just do it. I don't know. In his underwear? In
1: his underwear only.
0: Well, at least uh, if he was just in his drawers, at least he wasn't pinching a loaf, right? (laughs) Uh. Oh, you all know you wanted to go there.
1: I would love to know why nobody called it in that a strange man in his underwear was delivering random bread to random businesses, but... I guess I think differently. There. Well, was it was it
0: random bread to random businesses, or was it his? Was it the actual deliveries on the route? It
1: wasn't the deliveries on the route. They have no idea where the bread went, but five thousand dollars in bread is missing.
0: So it wasn't. See, I was listening, and I was thinking maybe he was like delivering the wrong bread. Nope. You know, because there's nothing worse working in the biz. The biz. The biz. Than when you get your wrong bread order.
1: Nope. It was. baguettes, sourdough bread, and it was just dropped off to random people throughout the day.
0: Well, at least I couldn't be like, is that a baguette in your pocket? Because he didn't have any pockets.
1: <laughs> no, he did not. So that was weird number one. Weird number two, reported by Time Magazine. Time Magazine reports that a 14-year-old fan at an England event snapped a photo of a Michael Jackson lookalike, but caught more than what met the eye. He claims that he caught the ghost of Michael Jackson. Appearing at the event, he actually took a picture of um, an imposter signing autographs. And above it was a floating image of what he claims is the ghost of Michael Jackson wearing sunglasses in the afterlife. This isn't the first time this has happened. A lot of people have claimed to see his ghost. A lot of publicity is going around right now. He's been in music videos after his death, everything else. So when reviewing the photos a few days later with friends, he noticed what appears to be the ghostly image. The ghostly image appears to be wearing the sunglasses. Like I said, it's floating above the head. I don't know if you guys have seen this picture or not. It's um.
0: I think I saw that the other day. It's a weird picture. Matt, if you Google search uh, "Michael Jackson ghost" uh, and and you go to the Time story, you should be able to bring it up on Spooky TV.
1: I thought it was pretty interesting. Time magazine doesn't usually report things like this, so to me it kind of looks like a woman, but then again.
0: Sort of Michael Jackson, right?
1: I was going to say that. Ah,
0: see? I cut off your jokes.
1: You did. The 14-year-old actually claims he does not believe in ghosts, but it is quite spooky to him. His mother, on the other hand, swears it's real and definitely believes it's Michael Jackson. What do you guys think?
0: I mean, I don't know. I think the Michael Jackson impersonator looks more like MJ than the, than the ghost itself. I thought but, so, too. I mean, then again, you know, who knows how much work he's had done on the other side, you too. You never
1: know what can happen. You are correct, but...
0: I mean, when he's there, he's got the opportunity to, uh, you know, to have all the best deceased plastic surgeons work on him.
1: It's very true. I did find it interesting that time actually picked up the story.
0: Yeah, I mean, it definitely looks like a humanoid. And it, I'm trying to look at it without that lens over you know, without that prejudice. That, um, I think you have the right prejudice. word,
3: lens. I think it's a lens refraction. So.
0: I mean, if if you look at it, there's a good chance that it's a fingerprint on the lens of the camera itself. You know what I mean? Like, if you put a fingerprint smear on the camera, you're going to get that same type of coloration and effect. Am
3: mm-hmm. I right? You would get some of it, but uh, that looks more like a, an inverse reflection. Something to do with the lens, lens catching uh, and bending light from around the corner. I mean, somebody standing off in the, uh, off he, the side.
0: He's wearing mirrored sunglasses and sequins, too. Right. So that could have something to do with it.
1: It is strange, no matter what we at.
0: Now, we would have known it was Michael Jackson for sure if he had reached out and grabbed the little boy that was taking the picture. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Hello, come here. 14's not too old.
0: No, no, just, right. Okay, just good. right That's when they're the same That's when they can sleep in the same bed as friends <laughs> I don't know why I'm crapping on Michael Jackson I'm a huge Michael Jackson fan
1: Never speak ill of the dead, Tim
0: If he's really dead You never know hmm. That hologram looked pretty damn convincing
1: I wasn't sure if it was never a publicity stunt Never speak ill of
0: the dead with Tim Are you kidding?
3: Have you heard the dead speak ill of him? I Not have
1: sure. <laughs> I speak but ill of I'm the grateful dead all time. the time They suck He can say whatever he wants without me here Because they're not going to follow him home. They're going to follow me home. So, the weirdest of all, um, I found this one on Coast to Coast. Three-year-old remembers past life, identifies murderer, and location of body. Have you guys heard of this story yet?
4: Oh,
0: yeah. Yeah.
1: So, a three-year-old boy living near the border of Syria and Israel said he was murdered with an axe in his previous life. He was born with a long red birthmark on his head. The way that his culture works is they believe that birthmarks are related to past life deaths. So I've heard that a few times before. I've heard stories of little, little kids usually before the age of five recounting things that have happened to them. Some actually can even write and speak in different languages perfectly. So... When the boy was old enough to talk, he told his family he had been killed by a blow to the head with an axe. It's customary for elders in their village to take a child at the age of three to the home of his previous life if he remembers it. The boy knew the village he was from, so they went there. When they arrived in the village, the boy remembered the name he had in his past life. A village local said that the man the boy claimed to be the reincarnation of had gone missing four years earlier, so it was actually perfect timing. His friends and family thought he may have strayed into hostile territory nearby, as sometimes happens. The boy also remembered the full name of his killer. When he confronted the man, the alleged alleged killer's face turned white. He did not admit to the murder, though. The boy then said he could take the elders to the spot where he was actually buried. In that very spot, they found a man's skeleton with a wound to the head that corresponded to the boy's birthmark, which also corresponded to a bludgeoning with the axe. They also found the axe, the murder weapon. Faced with this evidence, the murderer actually admitted to the crime. Hmm.
0: Now, a lot of our friends who believe in reincarnation, they say that there's there's a waiting period, you yep. know, and it's usually pretty considerable. Uh, but this sounds like, you know, it, it wasn't that long. Right. So well, I don't know. Either to t- to be able to have that much evidence and then to go there and. and to, to have have that much detail and then go there and have that much evidence. Uh, could also be something
3: that's known as a walker.
0: Right. I mean, it could be that he's been, uh, you know, the same way you could. He's picking up on yep. on these flashes of whatever and he's associating it with the past life. But uh, it definitely is weird.
1: It, the, the thing that struck me was the actual details. Of, it was just very strange. It was actually all recorded by someone New that wrote a book who's... Mid-career done a lot of research into that before, so it, um, it was a little too weird not to talk about.
0: Unless, maybe the kid was in on it?
1: <laughs> never know. <laughs> From the womb he started. All
0: right. Hey, you never know. So there you have it. That is the Week and Weird for this week. If you have any stories you would like to share with us, you can tweet them to us, at spooky sc. We're going to take a break when we come back on the other side. We'll be joined by our guest for tonight, Peter Tower, talking about his new book, Hockamock, place where the spirits dwell and throughout the course of the night you can feel free to call in with your questions 508-996-0500 877-996-1420 you can also tweet them to us at Spooky SC, or you can also email them to us SpookyCrew at SpookySouthCoast.com so we are going to take that quick break when we come back Peter Tower will be here to talk with us about Hockamock the place where the spirits dwell stay tuned for more here on Spooky South Coast Spooky South Coast. That's where the hell am I? By Don O'Malley. Thank you, Don, for contributing that to the program. If you have any music you would like to share with us to play here on the show, you can just email us Spooky Crew at spookysouthcoast.com. We're looking for music that is unlicensed. Uh, That's kind of the key, so that we can play it. Should it be spooky? Yeah, I mean, if it has a a good vibe that fits the show, that's what we're really looking for, and uh, we've been fortunate enough that we've gotten some contributions from people, uh, and we're happy to play them here on the air. Uh, Just make sure that there's no, you know, profane lyrics or anything either. So takes all the fun out of it. I know it does, but we do what we have to do to make sure that we can have, you know. what we need to get by, but also spotlight some of our listeners and, and show off some of their talent, because we do have some very talented listeners, and some of the music that we've been getting over the past few weeks is, is pretty cool stuff. Uh, so, uh, but a lot of it, too, is you know electronica stuff that people have made on their computer. I'm waiting until the bands get together, and they start just sending us the crap that they <laughs> record when they're messing around. You know We're going we're to get all the warm-up stuff, but that's fine. We like it all, and we'll play it all. Uh, and Again, during the course of the night, if you would like to call in with any questions, 508-996-0500, 877-996-1420. You can get those numbers right from our website, wbsm.com or spookysouthcoast.com. The numbers are right there. If you need to call in, you can also tweet us at SpookySC or email us, spookycrew at com. Now it's time to welcome in our guests for tonight, Peter Tower grew up in the Bridgewater Triangle on the edge of the Huckamuck Swamp. As a boy, he played Indian, built forts, caught water bugs and turtles, and traveled through the swamp on top of old stone walls. Today, he and his family live in Vermont, where Peter works as a freelance writer and technology consultant to area corporations. In his free time, Peter enjoys studying Native American history, amateur archaeology, hiking in the mountains, and fishing the local lakes and rivers. And uh, all the information about Peter and his book are linked up right on the front page of SpookySouthCoast.com. Please welcome to the program, Peter Tower. Good evening, Peter. How are you? I'm great. How are you, Tim? Oh, we're spectacular, as we say here. And uh, we are we are broadcasting from what I like to consider part of the Bridgewater Triangle, even though we're in Fairhaven, Massachusetts, and it doesn't fit the definition that Lauren Coleman came up with or that Aaron Kadju and Manny Familare have pushed in the Bridgewater Triangle documentary. I think that we definitely, the South Coast falls in the Bridgewater Triangle because we've just got way too much activity happening here for it not to be.
2: I'll agree with that.
0: Well, we'll we'll try to keep the paranormal occurrences in the studio to the minimum. So if anything goes wrong or goes haywire, it's just because we kind of suck at technology. Fair enough. <laughs> so now you grew up in the Triangle itself. Uh, do, do you want to say what town you grew up in?
2: Oh, yeah, I grew up in, in um, Easton.
0: Okay, yeah, so you are right in the heart of the you're a stone's throw from the from the Hock-a-Mock swamp. So uh when when you're there as a kid, you know, what what did the Hockamock represent to you as a youth growing up?
2: For me it was a playground. I mean I grew up when there was no play dates and there was a far Easton was a farm town when I grew up there and what I did after school is I just played out in the woods, out in the swamp, you know. And um, we basically built forts and stuff and ran around down there. So to, to us, it was just a place to play.
0: And at what age did, did you start to realize that there was something a little bit different about the swamp?
2: Well, I, well, I guess I, I never really saw it um, until a few years ago until, until I actually started so I grew up, started doing some research. It was hard to see it from the inside. As you guys probably know, when you're inside of a situation, it's it's really sometimes it's kinda of hard to understand the situation you're in. And I think that's the case for a lot of people that grow up down in, down there in the triangles. They it's hard to understand what's going on unless you get a bird's eye view of it. So I saw little glimpses of it. Uh, I was I had an experience with a mad dog attacking me when I was um, about 12, (laughs) and I always kind of saw the the articles in the newspaper about the mystery cats, you know, little strange cats bounding around, and uh, that was about it when I was a kid. I I never really quite got the full view of it, I guess.
0: Well, I mean, there's so many stories that come out of it too now that uh, seem to have grown in intensity uh, over the years, and and I, I don't know how old you are, Peter, but you know I'm I'm in my late 30s, and well, I'll I'll stick with mid 30s for now, but uh, I'm 36. Moniz uh, is 114, yeah, and Matt Costa is close to my age, and Stephanie Burke is like 10 years younger than all of us. So
2: yeah, I'm a little, I'm a little older than you guys.
0: Well, I don't think you can be older than Moniz. That's just not physically possible. Uh, not <laughs> Moniz. Uh, you know, it. It seems like though, no matter what generation you come from, uh, there are uh, an extremely high level of reports from this area, and it. it you know, there, there's waves for a lot of paranormal activity. There's flaps for paranormal activity, but with it, when it comes to the Hakamak and, and the Bridgewater Triangle as a whole you don't deal in flaps you deal in constants which i think is very strange to, to have this high strangeness all the time is is pretty unique
2: yeah and i i agree i i guess that's why they call they call my book a, a paranormal history i guess is what they're calling it mm-hmm. which is kind of a weird term but i guess it makes sense because i, I agree with you i think it's been there all along and, and the only way i could try to make sense of it is when i started doing research back in um I think it was 2006. Um, I had to go. I took it all the way back, all the way back to geologic time, back to the when the glacier came down and when the first uh, Paleo Indians came into the area, and all the way up to the Wampanoags and the other early settlers of the area in colonial days to try to understand. I was trying to get that, you know, that that bird's eye view of. What, why it was always happening and maybe some common things between what was happening back then and what, what's happening today. So yes, I agree with you, Tim.
0: And, and it's interesting that they, they call your book A Paranormal History because uh, as, as I've been mentioning to people when they ask me about the book, this, you know, if you're going to tell any story, the best place to start is the beginning. And you do go all the way back to the beginning of the formation of the Hockamock Swamp. Uh, it, it's not just about the, the human aspect of this story, which is where a lot of researchers have started in the past. This goes all the way back to the very beginning of how the swamp itself was, was created. Yeah. And, and, and that must have taken an immense amount of research itself.
2: Yeah, it did. It's kind of funny. I tell people I'm finishing finishing up a book for young adults now. I actually finished this book four years ago. Um, took me a few years to research, a few years to write, Then it took me almost four years to to find a publisher. And um, thankfully, Schiffer Publishing uh, decided to put it out. But it, it took me an awful long time to, to get it to get it out there. So yeah, it was it was a long it was a long process. I wanted to I wanted to do it right. Um, there were some other people who I talked to about publishing it, but they just wanted the scary stories, you know, the stuff, the flap in the 70s. Sure, yeah. Um, and I, and I, I kind of pushed back on that. And, it, and that's one of the reasons it took me so long to get it published is because I wanted to get the history part in because I felt that was important to put the area in context, I guess.
0: And and it really is important because uh, when you, we don't know what factors are exactly causing uh, these reports that still happen today. And it could be an amalgamation of all these different factors coming together uh, for like a perfect storm. But when you go back and you look at the history, you can see something wasn't quite right with this area pretty much from the very beginning. And, and there seems to be something going all the way back to how it was uh, created geologically speaking. Uh, there seems to be a little strange turns of events that, you know, if one thing had happened another way and, and, and the, you know, the glacier had melted a little bit more to the left and to the right, we might not have the Hockamock Swamp as we have it today.
2: Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, it's the whole Glacial Lake thing, you know, like Glacial Lake is uh, one name for it, or the Leverett Sea. <laughs> after the glacier pulled back, you know, there was, there was a lot of glacial lakes left across the country, but one of the, you know, the large one was left down there. And there's something about that, that ancient sea thing where, you know, it, it persisted for, they think, three to 400 years. And then, um, you know, it, it, and that's how all the peat was formed so the sea dries up and leaves a giant swamp and then um interesting part about that region that i found is that the first it was the first place in new england settled by the paleo people who came down um 11 to 12,000 years ago they all settled right in along the taunton right in along the hockomock so you have this giant sea drying up and this giant wetland and then you have these first people's coming in and living there so it's it's been settled for like an extremely in our terms an extremely long time Uh, yeah so the the geology kind of all plays into the the cultural part of it too
0: and it it also uh, plays into the legend of the Hockamock with some of these the the very first people that settled in this area you know they already came here with a reverence for it and and they already have uh, this this understanding that there's something different and there's something powerful about this region
2: that could be. Um, it's hard to say, you know. I mean, there's a lot of, as you guys know, with these the paranormal talk, topics. You're, you're, especially you're speculating, right? Sure. Everyone's speculating, so there's a lot of speculation involved. But I tried to put myself. I did as much research as I could. I read everything I could for a long time about, um, about, you know, everything from the Wampanoag's to the. To um, the, the paranormal, to religion and, and uh, metaphysics, you try to you try to put it all together, and um, ultimately, I think you 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 just giving it your best shot. And uh, I put my head against it for a long time and did the best job I could and gave it gave it my shot. And you know, it is what it is. I mean, whether it's any better than anyone else's guess, I don't know. But
0: well, when you're Coming at the idea of putting this together and chronicling the history of the hakamak what is kind of the driving force in your mind of telling the story? Are you thinking that you want to uh, approach it from a paranormal aspect? Because, I mean, in terms of you know marketability for a book, sure, the paranormal aspect of the Hakamuk is probably what it's most famous for these days. Uh, but there's so much more to the story about that as, as being this... Um, Really, one of the last few uncivilized areas of southeastern Massachusetts. And th- yeah. throughout the yeah. book, you can tell that you, you personally revere the area and that you personally have an affinity for it.
2: I went in with an open mind, Tim. I just happened to grow up down there. And I, yeah, I mean, I, it's, it's one of the last remaining um, wilderness areas in Massachusetts or in New England. I was interested in that because I do a lot of nature writing too. So I went in with an open mind and I was, of course, I was aware of all the strange stuff. So I just kind of went in. I wanted, I was curious. I wanted to understand what the place was. And I, I originally went in thinking cryptozoology. Um, I wanted to write, to be honest with you, I wanted to write more about the, the environmental aspect of this, of it. Mm-hmm. Because it's, it's a it's a pristine place. It's a beautiful place. But it, it took a, it took very quickly, it took a turn. Um where I, I kind of, after talking interviewing people from the 70s and hiking, I did a lot of hiking through there by myself. I very quickly realized, you know, it's not what the place is about. So I, it took a turn for me into the paranormal very quickly, and it was a place that I didn't really want to go, to be honest with you. I had no no uh, background writing about the paranormal or not too much interest in it, but I Viewer okay, station for the I'm South, right South about, and This is clearly what it's about. So I, I, I just, I just took that route.
0: And, and and that's kind of the story that the the Hakamuk seems to want to tell itself. You know, that's that's the story that, uh, again and again, everything goes back to. And I think that that's because that's the message that if you want to look at the swamp as a living entity, you know, that's the story that it's trying to portray. But you you know, you mentioned covering it from the environmental factor, and I think that that's very important, especially now with all the talk of South Coast Rail coming down to our neck of the woods. It's basically going to bisect the Hockamock Swamp and, and, and completely change the entire landscape of that area. Uh, so it's it's important to let people know what's going on there, at least from a environmental impact standpoint.
2: Yeah. And I did, I did do a chapter called Wonder Wetland, which um, there was a lot of great work done by um, Kathleen Anderson, who's one of the environmental leaders in Massachusetts, um, and some other people who, who, who set the Hockamock aside as, as conservation land. And one of, the, one of the people that did that was Senator, State Senator John Ames. Um, and it's, it was fascinating to me because John um, lobbied it through and put put, the, um, put it through the Massachusetts state legislature to set aside the, the swamp as a conservation area. but his, his great grandfather, um, Oliver Ames Jr, was actually the one who built the original railroad line through, um, through the swamp. the old leg that you know the old railroad bed, the hike up mm-hmm. So John's I think it was his great grandfather. Set uh, set that you know he he built it and then John set it aside as conservation land and now they're going back to try to open up Oliver Junior's railroad bed and rebuild it. So it's kind of a strange strange story within a story there with the Ameses and they they were very helpful to me. Uh, They actually opened up um, Oliver Junior's diary and sent me some stuff about. You know, when he was down there in the in 20 feet of muck trying to build the railroad through there on that bed, which I used to I used to hike up and down that railroad bed when I was doing research.
0: Is, was there anybody, was there anyone who stonewalled you in in your attempt to kind of capture uh, the essence of the huckmuck and, and gather all this information? Was there any anybody who didn't want to talk to you or didn't want to share?
2: Sure, yeah. Yeah, I did change a few of the names in the book. Um... You know, you know, you guys know how the, how these things work, right? So you see something and you report it, and and usually it, it doesn't work out that well for you, uh,
0: right? Yeah, there's... you
2: know, like in my dedication, I say this this is for all those who uh, saw, spoke, and paid the price. I dedicated my book to those people because I met so many of them that. You know, you just regular people like us who happen to be see something strange, and they talk about it. Next thing you know, they lose their job, or they they get ostracized by the community they live in. Um, so yeah, some of those people, a few of them, um, they didn't want to talk about. It. They were very bitter about what happened to them after they saw uh, certain things. And you know, I don't, I didn't blame them. You know.
0: Well, what about the Wampanoag tribe? I know that they're notoriously tight-lipped, uh, even in discussing their own history. They they have an issue when whenever we've tried to contact them in the past, I've I've had you know I've, I've gotten to the point where I've become very close to having them come on the program, uh, representatives of the tribe come on, and then without question, every single time they back out.
2: Well, I I would say to that. Him. I mean, I, I have a lot of respect for their people, their history. Um, the, the, the problem, the, the problem I have, I find when I'm when I'm doing research with the Wampanoags, is that they didn't write anything down.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: So, um, so it's it's hard to it's hard to really assess their level of knowledge. So what I did is I went back. Um, the fact is is that the colonial writings, like Um, Governor Bradford's writings and and, and, um, Winslow and all these guys these guys took good notes um, they made good observations and they wrote it all down and and most of the things I find I found William Wood included um, most of the good information about the Indians was written by the the colonial white settlers it's kind of ironic but um, unfortunately um that's kind of the way it is
0: I think was, was there a certain prejudice that came through in in their writings uh were they viewing it through a uh, particular uh, subjective well, lens so, so it's
2: it's kind of hard for me i'm a i'm a um I'm actually a, a mayflower descendant that's where I come from I'm related to about 10 of those people okay um so i'm I'm a little bit biased um yeah they are prejudiced but um I will say that Um, I think they were right on. This book is is a little bit different in that it's not, I I would say, it's not particularly um, politically correct uh, for these times. It's definitely coming out on the side of the pilgrims. Um, You know, I think they did a lot of things right. I I know that a lot of people look down on the way they acted, but after doing a lot of research, I I actually found that I, I thought that they were right in a lot of their thoughts and the way that they reacted to the whole situation
0: they were in. Well, and it's difficult too because a lot of the the past writings and the past histories and recollections are so open-ended. Take for example something like Dighton Rock. You know, we've we've had hundreds of years to try to come up with an answer and still nobody really has. And it's become one of those mysteries that we prefer to leave Unresolved, uh, because the, the speculation is probably a better story than the actual truth behind it.
2: Yeah, and that and that's a case, Tim. I think where there you know, on the part of my ancestors, there is bias, and, and I think I made that clear on my chapter on Dayton Rock. I mm-hmm. did a lot of research on Dighton Rock. Fascinating stuff to me, um, Edmund Burke, Professor Edmund Burke, delberry Barry from Brown, and all the work he did. Um, it's an absolutely fascinating archaeological artifact, probably the most interesting thing in the uh, archaeological artifact in the world. Um, you know, Massachusetts shoved it away in a little museum. I went down to Dighton Rock and saw it's on the banks of the Taunton, you know, little museum. They got down there. And yeah, I think that might be a little prejudice on the part of Massachusetts where, you know, there's, there's a big Portuguese... There's a claim by the Portuguese there mm-hmm. to Potentially um, being the first settlers, of the United States. Um, I, I think I left it in the chapter. You know, they need more evidence, but but yeah, Massachusetts didn't necessarily. We've got we've got Plymouth Rock, right? So, um,
0: which, which you know isn't isn't the rock, but we don't tell the tourists that.
2: <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, <clears throat> um, but Dighton Rock, I, I have to say that I think probably my, the most interesting for, for me the most one of the most interesting things for me about the whole book is, is the Dighton Rock part. I didn't know about it. You know, I started researching it and it's just it's 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 fascinating how, you know, that that rock actually changed history where you know the, the um the Danes the, the Danish Historical Society basically they perpetrated a fraud off Dighton Rock. So for a for at least, you know, almost a hundred years, people believed that um, there was proof that the Vikings the Vikings were in, you know, um, Rhode Island. Um, not to say that they weren't there, but they didn't really have the proof. But they perpetrated this fraud based on Dighton Rock, and, and for almost a hundred years, the whole world believed that the Vikings came just because of the writings on Dighton Rock.
0: Well, it's fascinating stuff. Yeah, and it's sad to say, you know, I've lived in this area for over 20 years now, and I never heard of Dighton Rock until we started doing this program, and when it came up in discussions about, you know, the Bridgewater Triangle.
2: Yeah, so 200 years ago, that that was probably the most talked about archaeological artifact in the entire world.
0: And now it's shoved away in a little corner and
2: massive debates between Harvard, Yale, University of Copenhagen, all around Europe. Yeah, I mean it's just it, it, it's funny because I, I was I was kind of um, mixed I, I had mixed feelings about including it, and then eventually they came to the conclusion, hey, this is just another mystery of this whole place. Mm-hmm.
0: And it's a key part of the history of of the Hakimak area uh, because not having those answers is. Uh, just you know, par for the course when it comes to dealing with things uh, around the Hacklemuck Swamp.
2: Exactly, it's just another mystery. You know, it's like it's like a you know, it's like a it's like a network of a mesh of mysteries.
0: And it just keeps getting deeper and deeper. And we'll get deeper into it coming up in the next hour. Uh, we only have a few minutes here before we have to take a break for the network news. Uh, when we come back yeah. on the other side, I would like to talk more about the actual. You know the genesis of it becoming known as the Hockamock Swamp, uh, how the natives sure. saw it and, and some of the, the the clashes between the natives and the colonials and, and how that led to kind of the, the scarring that's on that area today.
2: Okay, sounds good, Tim.
0: Right, and during the course of the break, if anybody would like to check out the book for themselves or purchase a copy, you can do so by going to com and clicking right on either the picture or on Peter Tower's name there and you can uh, have a direct link to... Purchase the site from Schiffer's website. Uh, purchase the book from Schiffer's website, and it's it's really it's a it's a beautiful book, and it's. I mean, it's, it's a heavy volume. I mean, you're going to be getting some good history out of this. Uh, so you'll have your chance to really get into the nuts and bolts of what makes the Hockamock Swamp. Also during the break, if you would like to get those Terracon tickets, you can do so by going to WBSM.com. Clicking on the Seize the Deal tab, you can pick them up now. You're getting tickets for half off. You're going to get the chance to go and say hi to so many great celebrities. Uh, Linda Blair is going to be there. Uh, Dee Wallace will be there. In fact, Dee Wallace may be joining us on the program for a little bit next Saturday night. Uh, we're waiting to kind of work that out. And then also, uh, because she, in addition to being an actress now, she goes and she does a lot of seminars for people. And uh, I'm sure at a lot of the places where you've gone and done things, mm-hmm. Stephanie. And and uh, so she's in this region for a couple of weeks, in addition to being a Terracon. Uh, and as well as there's so many uh, horror movie actors. You know, Kane Hodder is going to be there. Uh, uh, who else is the the, the two leads so from Grimm? So many people. Uh, wrestling stars such as Kane, WWE superstar Kane. Uh, and, of course, on the paranormal side of things, Amy Bruni and Adam Berry from Ghost Hunters. Jeff Belanger, Keith and Sandra Johnson, uh, Joe Chin, Spooky South Coast will be represented as well. I know that Stephanie you will be there. Yes, I will. I'll be there. Hopefully Matt and Matt will be able to make it. And uh, we're going to have a film festival. The Bridgewater Triangle documentary is going to be shown. So all the stuff that we're talking about tonight uh, is covered as well, a lot of it in the documentary. uh, And you'll get your chance to see it there and talk with Aaron and Manny about the film. And and I'm actually – I told Steve Perry, the organizer, I'm taking over one of the rooms. And we're just going to have all paranormal talks both days. So. If we can work that out, we should have some pretty fascinating discussion going on. And uh, also, again, legendtrips.com to get our tickets to the Murdoch Whitney House. And when when you get your tickets to TerraCon, you can also get tickets to our investigation of the Lizzie Borden House tied in with that event. So we do have to take a break for the news. When we come back on the other side, we'll talk more with Peter Tower about the Hockamock Swamp and uh, so much more coming up here on Spooky South Coast. two of Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin, Matt Costa, science advisor, Matt Moniz, and Stephanie Burke. Maybe if I introduce you first, it won't be as weird if I'm like... I think you're right. Let me try that again. Hold on. Okay. Let's pretend like those last Do 30 over. seconds never happened. Welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with Stephanie Burke, science advisor, Matt Moniz, and the silent assassin, Matt Costa. That seems to have a nice flow I like to that,
1: because you don't have a weird nickname either.
0: I don't. I... I People called me the Ghost Host at the beginning.
1: That like was what that. they had
0: dubbed me on the chat room. But now uh, Sophia temporarily uses that. Uh, so, and I don't want people to think I copied her, even though we've been doing the show since she was like five years old.
1: Right. Well, maybe if we go in that order from now on, I won't seem
0: like I'll the try. I, I'll try and go left to right. I'll go <laughs> counterclockwise, which goes against everything, every fiber of my being.
1: I'm very sorry, but
0: I'll try and do that just just so that you won't feel awkward. But I feel awkward I saying it, it too. I think it
1: bothers your OCD a little bit too though.
0: It does. I'll 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 just keep going left to right from now on. We'll get Why don't past you this. swap seats with Costco. Because he, we need to stick him over in the corner for the computer stuff. No, have Stephanie and
3: Matt switch.
0: Yeah, I I need him over there though. Plus it's so much it's I feel so much less rude when I do this to him.
4: <laughs>
3: you have a point
0: yeah you know, if, uh, if it was Stephanie, I'd be like, "Hey, thanks for joining us on the show every week now. I don't want to look at you
1: That's very true.
0: but I've been looking at him for over eight years now, so I've had enough,
1: oh, poor <laughs> enough, Matt. enough. It's
0: time I'm, I'm just it's only because I can't get the camera I uh, can't get the computer monitor to the middle.
1: We need another <laughs> widescreen shot coming from the other side so we can see Matt Costa
0: No more cameras. I know. <laughs> we're already maxing out what we can we do. We do have a lot. To begin with. Well, we're, by the time we're done with what we have envisioned here, we're going to have a full-scale production going on. We're going you know, to have to hire an outside production company to come in. And if anybody wants to do that, we'd love to have it. We think that this would make a fantastic television program, but nobody seems agree. to agree with that. So, that now it's uh, ten times better it is it's in in the uh, response that i've gotten over the over the week some people you know some people called you the girl
1: yes but that's that's, that's going to happen the girl for a while
0: you'll be the girl for a while uh but uh you know there's been nothing but positive response i haven't heard any negative uh, comments about adding you to the program. So
1: well, that's a good thing. Cause that it, it might happen, but
0: no, I think that also means that we we've set the bar so low too oh, no. that you can't help but come in and and be an improvement. Well, but I shook
1: things up a little bit. It's been a guy show for a long time. It
0: has been. The testosterone in here was palpable, and quite frankly, I was choking on it, and it it smelled bad.
1: Well, that's not. good.
0: So now that you're here, and you've kind of upped the game for us a little bit too, because now like we wear deodorant before we come in. Because we don't, we don't want to offend your feminine sensibilities.
1: I appreciate so that. So
0: before, oh, and you know, you can already tell because we're an hour into the program and Monique still has his shoes on. Oh, that's
1: good. <laughs> so that's, that's how you know fun. that. I didn't know you that, that was like a weird himself. unwritten rule. It's
0: kind of a problem. Do
1: we, do we normally take our shoes off?
0: Uh, last summer we almost smashed the glass window.
1: Oh, no. <laughs> All right. We can't have any of that because I have super smell I'm, right now.
0: I'm so. just kidding. I'm just teasing. <laughs> I've, I never even noticed till I'm i used
1: to the subway smell.
0: We do get a lot of that in here. And you'll get more of the other smell from the other side, too.
1: There's more smell?
0: Oh, yeah. Wait till you head out in the parking lot.
1: No, the the parking lot is really bad at night.
0: Yeah. And it, it, it gets worse in the summertime. I'm sure. When it's, you know, 90 degrees out. Awesome. All right. So, uh, yeah, sooner or later, we're going to have to figure out where that's coming from and see if we can get them getting fixed. <laughs> I think it's because we're the only people that are ever here at the time when it bothers us. So nobody so, else knows. Yeah, nobody else knows. So it's kind of up to us. But that's all right. You know, we can exchange. Just leave your uh, leave your Wi-Fi password unprotected, and it'll be a fair deal. <laughs> Although we we have Wi-Fi now here in the studio, so it's we've we've come so far. See, if you had been here in the early days mm-hmm. when we were recording everything on a little podcast recorder because there was no computer over here and right. and they didn't have all this technology and we didn't even have internet in the studio.
1: Those are the days where I didn't know any of you and I used to listen as a, a viewer. You were weird. I did, and I used to get so excited to listen to you guys too.
0: A, How weird you, is that you didn't have anything to do on a Saturday night better than listen to us? No,
1: but at that point I was probably totally underage in in high school. So
0: <laughs> Not that we advocate that kind of thing, but you no. could have you could have found something better to do than listen but to us.
1: I uh too young to work and definitely too young to go out. So I like paranormal stuff. There's nothing wrong with that, right?
0: And did you ever think that someday you'd be here on the program?
1: I never thought that that would happen.
0: Because she thought we were going to be canceled well before that. <laughs> no. So did we. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. We don't even know how we're still here. Uh, the only reason we're still here is because they haven't changed the locks and the key still works.
1: That's a good thing.
0: All right. Well, let's get back into the discussion with our guest tonight, Peter Tower. He's the author of the book, Hockamock, The Place Where Spirits Dwell. And you can check it out. You can get it from com. We also have it linked up right to the front page of SpookySouthCoast.com as well, if you would like to get the book there. And, uh, and Peter, are you doing any book signings or any events around here locally?
2: Um, not yet. I'm just, I've am just i been doing uh, radio shows mostly, I guess, lately. Um. I talked on the i guess it's the u f o and paranormal radio network
4: mm-hmm.
2: last month um so yeah, I'm trying to trying to get out more it's uh interesting the reaction that the book gets you know some some people, <laughs> uh, I'm, people aren't particularly interested in talking about it, i guess, but um
0: well, I think part of it though is people don't realize what a huge part of it. I mean, everybody recognizes the Bridgewater Triangle now. You know, it's it's taken over the paranormal world. And when you talk about Massachusetts, everybody wants to talk about the Bridgewater Triangle. But I think it's oh, yeah. lost on a lot of people that the Hockomock is the heart of that.
2: Yeah, and I guess the, the book is about the Bridgewater Triangle, but I I didn't, um, you know, like I said before, I I think I wanted to take it back. Um, a little bit deeper, and part, part of that was expanding it geographically into the, when I say Hockamock, I'm just not talking about the swamp, I'm actually, I kind of redefine the region, like as the Taunton the River watershed, mm-hmm. As I started like looking at what was going on back through history, it seemed to me that like, um, I think it's some 30, maybe 28 to 32 towns around in the watershed, and it seemed to spread out there, so I started thinking thinking of it more as a Hockamock region. Um, and that's that's why I called it Hawk Mock, and I, and I kind of see that as bigger than the actual swamp or the Bridgewater Triangle. It seems to spread out further. To me, I didn't really um, – I agree with what Lauren Coleman did in framing it in the triangle um, in terms of the flap in the 70s, but um, it, to me it seemed to spread out even further.
0: And to take a step back, I mean, for those unfamiliar, uh, we, we call – well, and you titled the book, Hockamock, Place Where the Spirits Dwell, and we think that that's probably the, the best translation of what Hockamock means.
2: Well, you know, I thought that too, and I guess it's... Um, when I when I first um, started doing my research, I kind of accepted that, and then, you know, I went down, I, I did, I talked to the guys down at the Massachusetts Archaeological Society in Middleborough, mm-hmm. and... Um, you know, they kind of gave me the, their, their take on the whole place, and uh, I had a chance to talk to John Jacques Rivard. I don't know if you know him. He's, he's a very old man who, unfortunately, just, just passed away, I believe, um, maybe, I want to say two years ago, three years ago. Um, in his 90s, he was volunteering down there. John Jacques was a very interesting guy. He, he, he did his best work, I think, in the 1960s. Um, with the Maya, he went down and, and, and translated the Maya language and, and did a lot of archaeological work down there, and he ended up later in life coming up here, and he, he composed um, a Wampanoag dictionary, which is still sitting down. It's unpublished. It's down at the Archaeological Society. So I hmm. I talked to Jean Jacques. He's this old kind of French guy, and he he's cool because he also does all this. Um, he does Wampanoag. Painting, like he paints Smith, so he's got all these cool paintings down there. Uh, you know, when when the Crow first brought corn to the the Wampanoags and stuff, and then he he does this. He's a linguist, really. So he, you know, I asked, I started talking to him, and I asked him. I said, you know, what I forget if I asked him what it meant, or he told me, but he basically he broke the word down, and he, and he said it means. Um, Hawk, oh, he, he pronounced it hoag, um, which means body in the Massachusetts dialect of Algonquin. And komak means enclosure or platform. So he told me that, that means basically means body enclosure.
0: Okay. And that's a, a, a far more benign definition than what we previously thought.
2: Well, I see it as more malignant in a way, Tim, because I think we know it's a burial ground. So, what he was telling me was that it's a giant body enclosure or a place where bodies were put on platforms.
0: Oh, okay, I see.
2: Right? So, so once I heard that, um, and it, so that's the literal translation of the word. So, you get, when you start getting into linguistics, you know, you get, when you start breaking words down literally. Massachusetts or any town name or anything, you get different meanings so that's the literal translation then I started thinking, okay, so um, and then, you know, Dr. Hoffman and these guys were telling me that, you know they definitely dug up a lot of Native American remains down there and they were doing the highways and stuff so that kind of changed the whole my whole perception of the place
0: and when you're chronicling all this uh, information that he's giving you, and, and first of all, the fact that he, he created a Wampanoag dictionary that is just sitting there. I mean, we, we need that because uh, we, we have so many of these words as part of our everyday lives that we have no idea what they mean. Um, you know, I know people who live on streets called Sassamon or Tispaquin, and they, they don't understand that these were people. You know they just go, "Oh gee, I wonder what that word means and no that's a that's a person it's a very relevant person in in our history and, and they just don't yeah, know it's,
2: it's a person, but the interesting thing like I'm not a very good linguist, but like I was i have a i try to understand it, and like I said, like when you break down the word literally there's a there's a meaning to the word tispa pin right and you know like I got into a little a little bit of that in hakamokck where um a lot of these guys in in the past there's there's a lot of people who you're talking about Dighton Rock and they're saying um, Miguel Court Real um, possibly lived on um, a sonnet neck for 14 years maybe he was the first settler true settler of America and um, you know Quinn uh, Quinn was was a was a word part of a word in Portuguese which uh, meant royalty and you know, when you start seeing names like Tispaquin, you actually you start looking at the Wampanoags, like Tispaquin, who was Wampanoag royalty. Um, you start seeing a lot of the Quinns, and a lot of these people start saying, well, okay, if you break the word down, literally, um, they took this from Miguel Correo, who was Portuguese. He was a royal Portuguese navigator. His father discovered Newfoundland, and him and his brother, Gaspar, coasted south. We don't know how far they came. But they're the ones who are supposed to, supposed to have written on Dighton Rock. We're pretty sure they did in fifteen oh one. So when you break the words down literally, you start seeing things like that. You start saying, "Okay, why was this guy named Tispaquin?" Uh, so you you can kind of learn more Tim, from the names when you break them down like that. It's just kind of hard to understand.
0: Right, you get more of the more of the history of, of of why and some of the hidden history actually. Yeah, uh, in that so when we're discussing then the native impact on the area i mean uh, just paint the picture for people of what happens when because for a lot of folks outside of this area or people that don't listen to this show where we talk about it quite a bit you know they they look at the you know the the early the late 18th uh, I'm sorry. Late 19th, early 20th century version of Thanksgiving. You know that they look at that as being the the story of how the pilgrims came here, and the Indians befriended them, and then everybody got along, and they all had a big Thanksgiving celebration together. And they don't realize the nuances of that relationship, and, and really how uh, just how much was at stake in those early days, and how much conflict there was between the two sides. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I mean, I guess um, so. I'm a Christian, right? And as I said, I'm also a Mayflower descent, but I'm a Christian, so I. This is very much a Christian book, Tim,
4: mm-hmm. um,
2: which is. I just approached it that way because when I when I started getting into the spiritual aspects of it, that was my my frame of reference.
0: Yeah, and you're and you're so, upfront about and, that and with I, the book I, too.
2: I try to identify with the Christian views of the Pilgrims versus um, the pagan views of of the Wampanoags and. You know, I wrote a chapter called Cosmic War, which kind of redefines King Philip's War. I've read some pretty good, notable books in the last few years that portray it a certain way. And, and a lot of times, it's kind of down on the pilgrims. You know, the pilgrims were the guys killing everybody. They took the Indians' land because they wanted more land. But I kind of did a lot of research, and I and I, and I started... To see that you know it was really I call it cosmic war because I really feel like it was a spiritual struggle between the between um, a typical struggle just like back in ancient Rome between Christians and pagans and that was very much the forces that were driving these guys right so you get you get Bradford's um, and and the, the Boston uh, Massachusetts Bay colonies uh, the Cotton Mathers of the world advising the governors, and then you get um, Massasoit, and you get his his, his shamans and his penises uh, who were his inner circle, um, who were who were the chosen people of Holbermock, who was their evil god of death and disease, right? And 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 they're advising Massasoit, and the Christians like Cotton Mather and these guys, are before him, were advising Winslow, were advising the Pilgrims, and it was all about it was. It was a different frame of reference then. It was all about religion. It was all about what your God is gonna do to help you win the battle. And that's all there really was. Um, So it was kind of different. You know, I had to put myself, tried to put myself in that world. And and when I wrote it through King Philip's War, it came out very different from what you typically see as an account today. Um, And the reason that was important for me is because I wanted to understand who the Wampanoags were talking to, who the shamans were talking to, who Holbomak was, and and how they summoned him, and and what they believed he was, and how they contacted him, and try to bring that forward and see if there was any links between them and then and what's going on today down there.
0: Mm-hmm. And and that atmosphere that was uh, around. Both groups, and uh, especially extending into King Philip's War. And I, I just, I personally feel like that has left uh, a mark and a lasting legacy on this area. You know, we talk about how this area has higher crime rates than the rest of the state. They have higher instances of mental abuse, of suicide, of I'm sorry, of mental illness, of suicide, uh, of all these different factors that. I think a lot of that has to do with living here and living in this area that has uh, just a negative energy that's trapped around it. And uh, it probably goes back to that.
2: Yeah, and I, I think you and Chris are right on that. And I saw your, I know you guys have done a lot of research on that. And unfortunately, I think I, it's a little bit darker in my book. Um, <laughs> I think there, there definitely, maybe there is some negative energy left from that. Tim, but I, I think, I really believe that the energy that this, this, this deity, Hobamok, was composed of, of the uh, spirits of the evil dead. hmm Okay, that the Wampanoags worshipped. The shamans contacted this deity and they, they kept, they basically kept the people living in fear by the time that the pilgrims arrived. Um, we're talking about some very bad spirits here and, and it, not all um, Indian tribes do that um, the Wampanoags may not do that now, I don't know uh, the Sioux, for example, worship the creator, so I get into a lot of uh, I did a lot of research on what, what the Indians, you know, what they worship and a lot of the, the tribes worship the creator, but then there's the flip side, when, the, when we came here, the Wampanoags were worshipping the other side, the, the side of death, disease, and, and, and the spirits of, of the dead, right? <clears throat> so so what you get there is, um, it, from you guys have probably talked to people, other type of people who've had paranormal, paranormal experiences, when you deal with the spirits, you never know what you're dealing with, right? And Yeah. No, uh, the problem, the Christianity says... Which I believe the Bible says don't deal with spirits, and you know don't play with Ouija boards. Like the parents told you, and you know it actually I think it turned out to be pretty good advice because you, because spirits like to trick people, right?
0: Right. I mean, we we find that all the time.
2: Yeah. So so when you deal okay, you can contact the spirit, but it's, chances are it's going to be a bad spirit, and um so. So the whole thing with the Hockomock Tim comes down to the fact that there was this whole for thousands of years, okay? There was these people who were worshipping these spirits. There was a, we know from the Wampanoag's own accounts that these some a lot of most of these spirits were bad spirits. There's no doubt. They told Edward Winslow that who was the Pilgrims' main uh, spiritual advisor at the time um, they they told him that they basically equated um, Hobomok with the devil.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, it wasn't a, para- a good, very good analogy because um, they didn't really have a concept of one master of the underworld like we do. It was composed of many spirits, but it was still it was it was valid because it was it was an evil. They saw it as an evil deity. Um, so you get that going on for thousands of years. Um, we know that the dead were buried in the swamp. We know, I think, the shamans, the shamans typically went into swamps to, to hold their ceremonies, right? So it all kind of comes together. And I think even before the war, Tim, I think that there was some really some bad stuff going on down there. And that, that's where the, the negative energy comes, comes from that was added to by the events that happened in the war.
0: No, cause so it, it's more uh, of the long-lasting impact of this conjuring, uh, more so than it was about the conflict.
2: Yeah, so the, so so the whole thing with the Hockamock, right, the big question is why, what, you know, in, I wrote about cults in my book, mm-hmm. um, Satanists. I needed to understand what these people were doing, uh, which is, you know, the whole question down there is why, why are these spirits so available? Right? Why? And, and, and that to me is, is what makes the Hockamock a unique place is that the spirits, and many of them I believe are bad spirits, are very, they're available there. They're and easily contacted there.
0: never really thought. And that, that could be why we have so many reports coming out today uh, from people who are not looking for it. Not what? Not looking for it you know people people who just move into a house that, that seems to have activity or or people who go uh, in you know into the woods say searching for bigfoot and end up coming out with an incredible ghost story uh, that maybe these spirits are, are yeah. yeah
2: i mean I, I i think you know one of the biggest things i always tell people for me is what made it real for me is i started when i started researching this place i hiked through the swamp at night by myself for a while um I just went in there at night because I wanted, I wanted to see what, what was in there. And the thing for me that made it real is, I like guess, I grew up in the woods near there, and I've hiked all around, up in Vermont, everywhere else, a lot of places, through all kinds of um, wilderness, mountain areas. And the thing that made it real for me is I can always feel that presence looking at me. You know
0: what I mean? Yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, you're never alone. And it's almost like around every corner, there's something waiting.
2: Yeah, it's just, it's like you can feel the eyes on you. Some people call it. When I, every time I go in there, and I, I'm not any kind of psychic or anything, but I can feel something looking at me and it's not friendly. And that was, for me, when I started going in there, that was the weirdest feeling because I've been in, in, I don't feel that in other places in the woods, but I feel it there, you know. And and I found out later, like as I read these events happening across the world, that that, that feeling happens other places, too. Other places where these kind of things happen, people have that presence. They feel that presence, you know, those eyes on them. Mm-hmm. not unique.
0: So, well... It- you had mentioned before that you are a Christian. Then coming from a Christian background, how does your, uh, how, how does what your experiences are in the Hakamuk fit into your faith?
2: I mean, they're evil spirits. It's obvious. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you, when you go in an area and there's a malevolent spiritual presence, um, I think you can feel it.
0: Do you feel that it's connected to what would be the, the, the Christian belief of the devil?
2: Um, so, in the, so that's, this is the question, right? So it's like, why? So eventually I started asking myself, you know, what, what's in there? You know, that's, that's what you have to, you have to ask yourself, what's in there? So that's when I, when you start studying the phenomenon, the, the mystery cats, black dogs, the UFOs, Bigfoot, the cattle mutilations, all this stuff, right? And how it comes together. And, and, you, and I started asking myself, you know, what is it? So I started researching those phenomenon in the Thunderbirds. And and I I, I think I drew out a conclusion in in a story-type form in the book. Um, But um, I I think it's a mix of things. Like you said earlier, I think you referred to a perfect storm. Um, There's a couple different things going on down there, and one one of them is definitely the presence of of evil spirits, and I think there's other things in there, too, uh, that... I kind of you know go into
0: in the book, but uh. well, I mean, basically, we look at you know at least in the paranormal world, we call the Hockamock Swamp, the Bridgewater Triangle, we call it a vortex area, an area where there's a high concentration of paranormal activity. And I'm I'm just wondering if maybe what you may be suggesting is that it's more akin to, and I I don't mean to put words in your mouth, but more akin to almost like a gateway to hell. You know, this is kind of like where 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 we descend into that. Uh, so there's, here there's on a Earth. couple
2: of things. So I started studying. You know, of all things, um, this guy Manuel Swedenborg wrote a book called Heaven and Hell. He was a mystic um, around um, just at the end of the 18th century. He lived in Europe. There's actually a, a Swedenborgian church down in Bridgewater. There used to be one at Harvard University. He was he was a mystic. He was also the um, he was. Said to be the the brightest guy in, in the history of the world, besides from Gerder. Very well respected guy. He he ran a lot of stuff in Sweden, and um, anyway, he was a mystic, and he he wrote a lot of a lot of stuff. And I read his stuff, and he he basically said that there's um, he claimed to be able to. I read him because my minister told me about him, and I read him because he's the only guy who basically. was respected who said he could travel between heaven and hell so he went through this period for about 10 years and he said that he was he could go and travel and he wrote about it and uh, so what he says is that it's a it's a series of reflections and you can read this i was just reading plato's republic last week and he has a similar concept of being in a cave and having a fire behind you, and you're seeing shadows in front of you, but you're really just looking at the shadows, and if you ever turn around, you're going to see the real beings.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: Plato kind of says that that it's it's shadows, and Swedenborg says that it's reflection. So he says there's, there's heaven, and it reflects onto Earth, and what you're saying is it reflects into hell, but there's also a place in between, I think. Okay. Uh, under our feet. In the earth, it's a spirit world, and it's a direct reflection of what's in the Hakkama or somewhere else. It seems to be. It seems a lot of cultures think it's some kind of holding ground between between the earth and hell, or the or the earth and heaven.
0: Well, I mean, it, it, with the reports that come out of there and, and the, the level of activity, uh, that definitely seems to be along the lines of what people have reported coming out of there. Uh, But now, when you look at it in that regard, uh, then you have to kind of take a step back then and say, well, if that's the case, if, if it is this thin membrane between that spirit world and and this world uh what can be the negative repercussions then of us constantly uh trying to to, to walk that line of us you know as, as paranormal investigators say on our end of things if we're going in there all the time and we're trying to seek out this type of phenomena what's going to happen to us if we keep trying to travel back and forth uh between our world and, and that spirit world
2: well, you know i mean I, like i said i can only approach it i you know, I was in there, and some things happened to me when I was in there, and um, I don't get scared much, but I get I get afraid in there sometimes at night, and you know, the thing that carried me through was my Christian faith, and I uh, and I wouldn't I I don't think so. So there's this thing, right? When the when the Indians were you know the the shamans were with, were cursing Plymouth, and they were all kinds of stuff was going on. These guys could they were drawing powers from from the spirit world. They could they could freeze water in their hands in the summertime. They could split rocks. They could do all the same kind of stuff that people can do today. Um, but when a when a Christian, especially a Christian minister, came to them, they had no power. They had nothing, right? So. They had no power to do anything. So, you know, it's this, it's this kind of thing where um, I believe that Christ- Christianity, you know, God's God's kind of the king, king God. He's my God, but I believe He has control over all this stuff. So, for me, it was to be a Christian. I believe that protects me against because the Bible says, you know, these these evil spirits have no power against. They really have no power against Christianity,
4: mm-hmm.
2: so for me that that was my protection, and I I would not have gone in there if I didn't have that after a certain point.
0: Well, that that and a flashlight, I would think too, because <laughs> <laughs> it gets pretty it gets I don't pretty nasty use
2: Lights there. in there, I don't use lights in the woods.
0: Well, one thing <laughs> yeah. that I I can't bring with me if I go in is my cell phone because I get terrible you know everybody gets terrible <laughs> coverage in there, but mine I have T-Mobile, so yeah. it's especially bad. You know, I I yeah. just gotta rely on carrier pigeons in case you get lost.
2: I carry a lot of other stuff. It's nothing to do with lights.
0: <laughs> well, there you go. And uh, when we're talking, too, about uh, the modern swamp, we have to understand, too, that uh, we've encroached upon a lot of what would have encompassed their swampland, too. I mean, we, we've been able to kind of knock it down to, to a fraction of what it would have been back in, in that time.
2: I what Locked a little bit, knocked a little bit down. Mm-hmm. Um, the railroad, like you said, is is a concern. I mean, uh, that's the big one. Yeah. Uh, we've, been, sure. we've been kind of nibbling away at it, you know, it's at the edges, building um, new developments and things like that, chipping away at it.
0: But, um, and and we paid a price for it, too. The, the more that we've uh, encroached upon it, the more the activity has uh, amped up. Well, one thing that I do want to ask you about in the book is you mix in some—I guess we can call it—kind of like some historical narrative, uh, but it's it's it, it's it's fictional, but it's your yeah. take on what might have been going on at the time, and it, it's almost like, it almost plays out like two separate stories, but they work together hand in hand. You know, it's almost like you're telling this story, and then you have the the nonfiction guide to the to the background to that story. Yeah, I
2: hope you're right. I hope it does work together.
0: Well, I, I mean, um, it, it seems to, but uh, – and, and when you are writing that, that fictional aspect of it, uh, how did you come up with those ideas? Was it just something that you had speculated upon, or, or was it something that kind of just came to you as you were doing this research? It
2: came to me, yeah. It's like I, I, I have a kind of a weird style of writing where I, I write nonfiction for a while, and then I, I kind of I just – I, I want to do both. You know, I've read really good nonfiction books about places, and I've read really good fiction books, but none of them seem to kind of give it all, or at least I don't know how to combine them. So what I do is I'll just write nonfiction, and then a scene will come to me, and I'll just I'll see it. You know, I'll just see what happened back in Bridgewater in in 1880, and I'll just write write it through. So you kind of, I like to think that you get kind of the the facts and figures, but then you can kind of see the movie of it in your head. Mm Mm-hmm. Um some of this stuff particularly towards the end when I'm writing about John the Baptist baptizing people in the Hockamock River and all this crazy stuff it just I don't know where it came from I'm um, just I think it kind of came from God you know I just started writing these scenes and um it just kind of worked you know and seemed to make sense I don't know if it makes sense to anyone else but um
0: well but I mean if it's the story that you know you are meant to tell then uh you know, th- then you got to kind of let it flow out of you.
2: Yeah, so it it, it kind of came out, and um, I'm hoping it makes sense. So I know it, it'll make sense to guys like you and Chris. Uh, how many other people it makes sense? Who know the Who know the Bridgewater Triangle? Um, it's you know, I'll be curious to see how many other people it actually makes sense to because there's there's a lot there. You know, you kind of have to understand the phenomena, the basic idea. You know what's going on with UFOs and Bigfoot and all this stuff, and to, to kind of make sense of it. But I'm hoping that um, at least the community will will understand it.
0: Well, one thing I can tell you, uh, uh, at least about the the paranormal community here, is that uh, the Wampanoags have become the sympathetic figures in this story uh, to a lot of the investigators, and it's become more that they were victimized by the colonists and that they were. Uh, converted and a lot, of, a lot of the time against their will, and that King Philip's War was a result of the aggressiveness of the colonists, and uh, so you'll find a lot of folks who are uh, on the side of the Wampanoags and will kind of have the yeah. reverse take that you that you've taken on on the yeah,
2: uh, it's not a politically correct book, Tim. Mm-hmm. Um, I you know I read a good quote the other day if, you, if someone was saying you know if you're going to be a writer write the truth. You know, don't write what's politically correct. Write the truth, and that—that's right. what I do. And there's some hard things in this book. It definitely comes out on the side of the Christians and the Pilgrims, which is pretty unpopular today, to be honest with you. Right. And um, but I, I called it, you know, the way I saw it. And I—and you know, if you look at—if you look at the way the Wampanoags were living, I have a lot of respect for them. Um, I have a lot of respect for their spirituality. But if you look at the, term, the way that they were living religious life when we came here there's a lot to be desired I mean they they were worshipping an evil their main deity wasn't Chiodun or Cotton Tower it was the an evil god of death and disease and a lot of that wasn't their fault in my mind a lot of that the shamans they were the victims of their shamans so just like you see some priests of today <clears throat> were taking advantage of their their, um, you know, their their people, the shamans were very much taking advantage of the Wampanoags, holding them in fear, and and they were, you know, they were worshiping some bad some bad spirits. I mean, so, you know, I, I some think people don't like to hear that, but that's the way I saw it. So,
0: but, but maybe the inverse of that, or or maybe the the uh, the other side of it would be similar to a lot of the. Puritan-era uh, preachers who were all about hellfire and brimstone and using that fear as a way to control their own people.
2: Exactly. Yeah, that's that's the flip side. But on the other hand, I mean, we were worshiping the Creator. So there's this theme, right, like the Sioux worship, Their God was, the main God was the Creator. And on the flip side, you get the God, the, the death and disease God that, that kind of, I think, from the tribes slipped into. Um, the Creator is typically the the God of he's the God of life and, and goodness, right? He can be harsh, but but then you get this other these other dudes who you know, well, you know they're gonna bring death, they're gonna make you sick, and they're gonna bring death to you if you don't if you don't give the shaman his cut, right? You don't do what he wants, give him his political power, you're gonna pay the price, and that's the deal that was going on.
0: Well, part of it though too is. You know your religion and the way that you're looking at it is through a monotheistic approach, whereas with the Wampanoags they were more polytheistic, where they had multiple gods uh, that yep. would be worshipped. And and so for them, you know, it might have just been whichever one they needed to to satisfy at the time, whichever one was the the benevolent one. Like so, if you go back to uh, the uh, you know, just look for an example, the idea of the Puckwudgi. Uh, yeah, you know, they were these negative beings, these these evil entities that came about uh, as a result of their interaction with what I thought was the creator god, which was Mashop, And because of that interaction, uh, and because of that conflict, then the Wampanoags had to constantly appease these Pukwudgie creatures. So maybe that's kind of the same idea as to why they were worshipping Hobbomock. It wasn't so much that they were revering him uh, as much as that they were trying to uh, satiate him and, and keep him at bay. I mean a, a lot of religions seem to do that uh, over history it's it's less about you know the good guys that they they want to worship and and love and All right I think that might have been our first ever guest hang up We'll give him the benefit of the doubt if he wants to call back he has the number 5 <laughs> Five zero eight nine nine six zero five hundred. If anybody has any questions, but I saw your
3: question as
0: relevant. I wasn't. I wasn't trying to uh, crap on his beliefs at all. I'm just saying that that's another approach to take in it.
1: No, but at the same time, if you're gonna actually,
0: it
3: sounds like the appropriate approach.
0: Well, uh, I'm never going to tell somebody which religion is right and which one is wrong. I'm just suggesting that there's the possibility that it wasn't worship. Uh, as, as it
3: was appeasement.
0: Appeasement, yeah. right. And and especially when you look at a lot of the pagan cultures, a lot of the pagan events, a lot of the uh, holidays, a lot of the observances were just as much about appeasement as they were about Everything worship. Everything
1: had balance. Yes. It was always balance. And I think if you're going to write a book with a controversial issue like that, you have to look at both sides no matter what you believe in. So just to make it all about balance, all about fair, and you're kind of stepping over the line by going into that paranormal aspect.
0: When – how how should I put this? Again, I mean, I I have no – Carefully. Well, I have no dog in a religious fight, so I have uh, no reason to – Push one agenda over the other myself, and I don't know enough about other people's religions to say if they're right or wrong, and everybody has the right to to worship what they believe we respect uh, freely everybody. Yeah. exactly, but when you look at uh, what was going on for the natives at the time, you're dealing with all of a sudden these people come from somewhere else, and and the the pilgrims weren't the first you know the the sixteen twenty visit from the English wasn't the first they had been there right. previously i think I think he's calling back in so yes. I, and uh, i think so when you just to finish my point, uh, when you look at what was going on, it had been a period of a number of years that they'd been having these visitations, maybe it was the English that was the reason why they thought Habemack was coming. Well, coming yeah. down
3: on them. Well, bear in mind that they had just spent a number of decades dealing with the diseases that were brought by the um, settlers at mm-hmm. that time. So yeah. the the god of you know disease and death was what they were facing, so trying to appease that. It would have been still, a large fear, y- yeah. Right, still that, at that time, and I'm, I'm going to bring Peter, the, sh- the shamans, you know, capitalizing on that, just like yeah. priests There's of various bad, other no religions day, have capitalized yeah. on fear. of Their people, it's yeah. a, it, it's power is power, it and it is. crosses and it all cultures. Yes, back then yes. too,
1: just yeah. like it does now.
0: Bring Peter back in here. Peter, yeah, guys, are you with
2: us, guys? I mean, you got to remember. It. The, the Indians took a very practical approach well,
0: to this stuff. Uh, but they, before they, before you finish your point, I just want to make sure that was a, a disconnection, not a hang up. Um,
2: I think it was a disconnection. Yeah, it didn't, Okay, of course it didn't hang up.
0: I was going to say we we haven't lost anybody yet. So, <laughs>
4: yeah. No, Although, wait a minute, maybe,
0: maybe Commander Sanisido right we might have lost yeah, the, <laughs> the, the reincarnated Roswell, the reincarnated Roswell alien. I think she might have hung up on us, but that was fine. <laughs> so I'm sorry you were saying. I didn't mean to interrupt you.
4: Yeah,
2: no, I mean what I what I um read if if you read um Edward Winslow I mean these guys the Indians took a very practical approach to to religion. They from what I understood like you said they wanted to appease him their attitude was okay, this is a very powerful god. I'm going to appease him. I'm going to pray to him because if I don't, he's going to bring death and disease to me.
3: And and they already by the did.
2: Way, by the way, the creator is always going to be nice to me because he's the creator. I think that's the attitude that they took.
3: Well, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. When the settlers first started coming to the area, they started suffering all of these diseases. And I think that's what prompted them to you know, start trying to appease Habama. Is you know he was in the area. This is what's happening. This is what we're seeing. Yeah, so they're, let's...
0: they're looking at the the English and and what they're bringing to them and saying, "Holy crap, Hobomock, What did we do to piss you off?"
3: Yeah. Well, oh,
2: guys, I told you. I mean, this isn't a politically correct view. I I believe that Hobomock was being worshiped for a long time before we showed up. That's just my opinion. Mm-hmm. I respect I respect and your, your opinion. And you're I entitled mean, to you know, yours as well. It's not it's it's not popular. I mean.
0: Yeah, we just try to we we like to try to come up with all the different theories too. I mean, uh, you, you know, you can have yours, but we just try to cover all the bases because we think that in terms of the discussion, what we try to be is we try to be the uh, I call us the avatar for the audience. So we're just trying yeah. to bring up some of the questions that they might have as well. Oh, I totally understand. And one of the interesting things about it, though, is that uh, you you're dealing with the people that we had no basis. To go on, the, the 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 English, the Europeans, they had no real basis uh, because of the way that their culture had advanced in Europe. They didn't have this native aspect to deal with. Had you know, had they encountered other native people uh, before, then they might have had a little bit more of a of a emphasis. I'm sorry, a little bit more of a basis of comparison. But to them, you know, they saw the natives as being no different than some of the other wild animals they were encountering.
2: Well, you, you got to remember. I mean. The Bible, these guys were, were believed that Bradford and these guys and, and um, Winslow and John Alden, they, they believed that the devil lived in the wilderness. Mm-hmm. Because after the, after the fall of man, the Bible says that God released the devil into the wilderness, right? So they were fully under the belief that the people that lived in the wilderness were under the influence of the devil. So they, they fully expected to find people under the influence of the devil, and one one of the ironies in the book that I talk about is that when they came here, you know, if they had moved out west and met the Sioux, they they wouldn't have found that. You know, they would have found a person of a race of people who worshiped the Creator, mm-hmm. and and that was basically through the chiefs, right? Um, but when they came here to New England, they found the shamans were more in control than Massasoit was. And they, they were worshipping the other side of the equation. So they actually found, in my mind, Tim, I think they actually found their worst nightmare. They found what, what, what they believed in.
0: Yeah, I mean, that could definitely be uh, the case. And I, I think, too, part of uh, what Moniz was saying was right, too, that they could have just been being controlled by that small group within, within their own people. You know, it could have been a power play on their part. Because, I mean, we, we look back at some of the history that we do know about. And uh, when we're talking about Massasoit in the early days of the English coming here, you know, the, the Sagamores, the Sachems were the people who were kind of in his ear constantly with all the advice. And he wouldn't do anything without consulting them. And it, yeah. it seems when you look at it, everybody likes to give Massasoit credit for, for trying to bridge that gap in the beginning. But he only went as far as it seemed that they would allow him to go.
2: Yeah, I mean, they, they were his advisors, you know, and, and the thesis were the real, real, real powerful guys, you know, the Wampanoags who went out, did their, their ordeal in the wilderness as young adults, um, were contacted by Hovermuck and were given special powers in battle and all that. And Tispaquin was, was the ultimate, um, was the ultimate um, form of that. And, you know, what I learned is that a lot of the atrocities that were committed against the settlers, and there was atrocities on both sides, in the Indian did too, were committed by Tispaquin, And Tispaquin, he prayed directly to Holbamok. Okay? And you know, when he went into Bridgewater, before he went, he went into Bridgewater and he was going to destroy the town. You guys may have heard this story. And he prayed, him and his, um, the other shamans prayed to Hobomock before they went in and they saw a vision of a, of a bear in the sky and he called off the attack and there was only 30 guys that could have defended Bridgewater at that point point. Um, and he backed off and he later said you know if I had seen a deer I would have attacked and killed everybody but but they were taking direct counsel from Hobomock and Hobomock was not a benign force
0: oh no it definitely so, does not sound that way um well, we're coming up on the final few minutes of the program here, uh, but as you said, you know this is a, a topic that's that's going to be very controversial uh, to a lot of not only the paranormal researchers here, but a lot of the historians in the area as well. And, yep. uh, and and you'd mentioned that you know you were having some trouble getting the word out about this on on some of these shows, and I wonder if that might be the part of the reason because what I've realized is that not not to toot our own horn here, but not everybody that's in paranormal radio wants to tell a story from every side. And wants to have every side has have its say.
4: Oh yeah. So yeah.
0: so there's probably a stigma against you already if you're you know for the views that you take with this book, uh, and and hopefully people who are listening to this program and, and have their own programs, they'll be able to kind of look past that and and have this discussion because we don't know what went on there. We we yeah.
2: And and I think you're right. You're exactly right, Tim. I appreciate you having me on. I, I would ask people just to read the book with an open mind. Um. You know, when I started to write, I I told myself that I was gonna—if I was gonna be a writer, I was gonna write the truth. I was gonna do as much research as I could, and I was gonna write, try to write the truth, regardless of how you know how controversial. And that's—that's what I think great writers do. That's what writers are here for, right?
0: Sure. Well, we're here to—I think that we're here to chronicle, uh, you know, the human experience as best we can, and, uh... and
2: try to find the truth and there's a lot of people who are vested in things that aren't the truth, so um, yeah, I mean, if it's controversial with me, that's okay, Tim, because um, that's my job as a writer, is to throw the ideas out there and let people decide on their own, you know, so.
0: Now, uh, you, you mentioned too that you you're con- you have continued excursions out to the to the Hockamock, or have you kind of put that away since you finished the book?
2: Um, well, like I said, I mean, I, I finished this book in 2010, so it's kind of strange for me, and writing another book for young adults and finishing up now. Um, You know, I went in there for a long time, and I had I had some, um, I I had kind of a a strange time of it, some some experiences that weren't particularly good. So um, I have mixed feelings about it, you know. Uh, I don't go down there too much right now. But um, I think if anyone who's spent, spent some time in there kind of understands what I'm saying it's
4: sure, when yeah. you get
2: into this when you get into this kind of stuff it kind of um, weighs on you
0: right it, it definitely takes a toll uh, especially when you invest so much of yourself and 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 so much of your time into it and now you We'll be talking about it so much too that I can imagine. You know, it only you know it's like if you got to make ice cream uh, every day, you got to pour out ice cream for people. You probably don't want to eat ice cream all that much yourself anymore. (laughs) That's
2: right. Yeah, it's a good analogy.
0: (laughs) Although I don't, that's not a good analogy for me because I would never get tired of ice cream. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Peter. Again, his name is Peter Tower. The book is called Hockamock, Place Where the Spirits Dwell. It's available from Schiffer Books, uh, wherever books are sold. You can also pick it up from Schiffer.com and linked up right on the front page of SpookySouthCoast.com. Thank you so much, Peter, for joining us.
2: Thank you, guys. Have a great night.
0: Have a great night and a great Memorial Day weekend. You too. Alright, that about does it for this week's show. Uh, we will be back next week following the Red Sox. Uh, we'll have hopefully some of the guests from Terracon coming on and joining us. Uh, we did have something planned where we we're going to be talking about uh, Dr. John Mack, but that is going to be postponed to a later date just because of scheduling conflicts uh, with the director of the film Denise David-Williams. So we'll have her coming on in an upcoming edition of Spooky South Coast. And again, if you are new to the program, every episode we've ever done, it's all available via podcast, southcoast.com, iTunes, wherever you find your podcast you will find every episode that we have ever done even if you don't find it in your archive feed because hipcast our podcast servers messed up some of the stuff uh, you can get it right from spookysouthcoast.com on the slideshow there we have our archives linked up there and you can download us on stitcher and listen to us every thursday on the dark matter radio network as well so until next week for matt matt stephanie i'm tim we want you all to stay spooktacular